Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. This is our special summer Heat Rocks episode where we invited a guest, or a set of guests, I should say, to join Morgan and I to talk about our favorite summer albums. And for that, we have the dynamic duo behind LA's own Quetzal, Martha Gonzalez, and Quetzal Flores. The band's been together for, what, 25 years now? Yes, 25 years. Oh, my God. Seven albums to their name, including Mm. last year's The Eternal Get Down. Actually, that sounds like a good summer title right there, The Eternal Get Down. (laughs) And the Grammy-winning 2012 album, Imaginaries. Their socially and politically inspired music draws heavily from the Son Jorocho traditions of Veracruz, but true to a pair of musicians who grew up in Los Angeles, they bring in all manners of other influences, from modern rock to R&B, Afro-Cuban to Brazilian. And I suspect that if there is one area of music that they have some thoughts about, it's music to help cool down or maybe heat up the summer season. Katsal, welcome to this special edition of Heat Rocks. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin with this as a group. What associations do each of you have between music and summer? For me, summertime has changed over time. Yeah. Right. The meaning of summer. But Mm -hmm. I think that early on in my life, it was about having a whole lot of time on your hands (laughs) to watch television or, you know, being on the bus, going to work back and forth, all that stuff. So I think that music, you know. It just kind of gave you that extra company you needed mm. in those long days and uh, riots. You said that summer's changed, though. So what is it now if that's how it used to be? I feel like um, I don't have the kinds of summers that I remember as a kid. I think they tend to be just as busy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that music changes has for that reason. I think that summer music I don't really, I think about albums in the year rather than summer times. Interesting. I'm not saying that the concept of this show isn't cool, cool and interesting. <laughs> you need but to I think, leave. <laughs> but I think that, you know, as a kid, summer and music, I feel like coincide, you know, just sort of makes sense more than as an adult mm. yeah. for me. Yeah, for me, uh, summertime was a time of deep listening to music mm. since I was a small kid, bumping Intervisions or any of those 70s albums from Stevie. I mean, I have to say, in, in up to 80, which is uh, Hotter Than July, yeah, which is an incredible album as well, and, and but a shift for Stevie Wonder also. Uh, and then I, I had the great fortune of living really close to Lincoln Park, walking distance from Lincoln Park, and during that time, they used to have the, the big summer concerts there. Right. And so I got to see El Chicano and War and Malo and, and Tower of Power and all these incredible groups that would come through and play these summer jams. Uh, until someone got stabbed, and then uh, they stopped doing those <laughs> concerts. And so, so for me, that's summer was always a time of, of, like I said, deep listening to live music and and records. Yeah. How about you, Morgan? The same. Summer was a time for listening to music, but uh, mostly because um, growing up we didn't have like access to video games. TV wasn't that interesting. And so all we had was really music. And it just reminds me of being little, having uncles that had great sounds, Mm. being in the back of the car. And that was, for me, a great uh, music education. I spent a lot of childhood summers in Waco, Texas, with my grandmother. So I heard everything from gospel. She would play the blues, but she didn't want people to know that she was playing the blues. People thought that was devil music, whatever. (laughs) And then um, so she would be like, you know, don't, don't tell anyone. And uh, a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire, a lot mm. of Al Jarreau, mm-hmm. a lot of Cameo, a lot of Lakeside. Mm. So uh, formative, you know, it was ethnomusicology in the summer, courtesy of my uncles and cousins and those that were tasked with babysitting the kids. Yeah. I think anyone who knows me knows that I have long been obsessed with thinking about summer and songs in particular. I used to do a summer song series on my blog, Soul Sides, where I would invite um, people. Morgan, I think you contributed actually a great contribution for you uh, a few years ago, just to ask them about what their favorite summer songs are and really this question of what the relationship is. And through those years, I've tried to unpack my own associations. And I don't know if I have a definitive answer. I think in a lot of ways, what I think about it echoes 
um, things that everyone has said here, that it's that partly music does keep you company in those longer hours when you're not in school, when you have time for deep listening. And there's something about summer music which I think what draws what draws my interest is around our ideas of summer are always bound up on some level in in some kind of fantasy, right? That what we want from summer is never going to be fully realized. It's it's a, a season of high expectations. And in some cases, maybe you get a, a tinge of that realized, but, but for the most part, summer always ends, number one, faster than you want it to. And when you look back on it, it never is quite what you perhaps wanted it to be in May. And I think there's something <laughs> that the emotionality that comes with accepting that difference between expectation and reality is what makes what makes music work so well because I think music plays with those kinds of emotions about these contradictions about the things that you aspire to and the things that you fall short of the summer always represented to me you know you're in between either a breakup or a breakthrough you're either going through something where, for which you need an album to play on repeat mm-hmm. right or uh, the summer is a defining moment. You're on your way to adolescence or you're on your way to freedom or you're on your way to college. Yes. And so mm-hmm. for for that matter, you're having a breakthrough. And that's what it reminds me of. Growing up, we didn't have we didn't have playlists. So we didn't listen to a whole bunch of albums. It was always one definitive mm-hmm. album mm-hmm. per car ride. Because <laughs> as I've said many times, black people didn't skip songs. Touch someone's song before time and that was an issue. Oh, yes. And... Um, <laughs> You just you just didn't really do that. And so to your point, when you were bringing up Inner Visions, I'm sorry, in some of those Stevie albums, that's what it felt like. The whole thing, mm-hmm. the whole album cover to cover. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up. What makes a great summer album? It, it impacts you emotionally. It helps you with your emotional development. It helps you, like you mentioned, it helps you get through a breakup or falling in love. It helps you to clarify some questions that you might have. That you're that you're able to ponder on with more time because you have this this space to to focus on something. It also makes you move. It makes you mm. inspires you. Makes you get up and and want to do something, you know. And I grew up in a, in a family of activists, and so the summer music was always that music that you know it made you want to get up and 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 do something. I think for me, there's to me a real difference between a great summer song versus a summer album because mm-hmm. a summer album it can't just be something that that like that's got one or two tracks on it it has to be something that you can go end to end with because it's about that deep listening and so i think a lot of my favorite summer songs i wouldn't necessarily promote the album those songs appeared on because it may be that that's the only one track that i want to hear but i could have a deep association with that song in the summer but for an album it, it, again it cannot be a one track or it has to be something that holds up mm-hmm. for the duration from beginning to end which is why in thinking about what to pick for today and we'll get all we'll get to this uh, in a minute but it was actually harder than i imagined because i can give you 10 summer songs right now Mm-hmm. Summer albums, I really got to think about what did I actually listen to from end to end. And I think there's something about being able to sit with a body of work rather than just these pinpoints that makes a huge difference. I think what makes a great summer album is its ability to linger. And for the reasons that we mentioned, summer being this season, it'd be great conversation with labels and retailers. Why the summer? Yeah. Why did you decide to release this in the summer? And I think because of what we've all said that you have in- uninterrupted time. Right. Summer albums tend to linger because of the way we grew up and we play these albums over and over again. So they stick with you. And so your memory of that particular year, and we'll get into each year that we chose, is wedded to that album. And so for me, um, I don't tend to go back to like what came out during the Christmas holidays. Right, right. But I do (laughs) think about the summer of, you know, insert year there. So its ability to linger is always for me. Before we get into everyone's album choices, I'm just wondering for the two of you in Katsal as a group, you must have, I'm assuming, put out at least one of the songs in your catalog came out around summertime. And I'm wondering to what extent in thinking about how you wrote the songs and thinking about the production, the arrangements, the whole nine, did that enter in in terms of, okay, we're going to put out this, this album that is going to come out in the summertime and therefore we need to work that in creatively on some level? I'm just wondering if that was ever the case. I mean, there, there are some coincidences for sure with work songs, especially that was released in the summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the memory I have for work songs is, is particularly devastating because we released it in the summer of 2004, and that's the year that we had just come off a tour with Little Feet. We were going to jump on a tour with Taj Mahal, mm. 
and then going to jump on a tour of Los Lobos after that. And it was going to be like, you know, epic summer touring. But our van and our uh, trailer were stolen. With all our gear in there. And, <laughs> and so that just put a halt on, on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was really painful. And so we did end up doing some of that tour towards the end, but we missed a whole lot of tour dates. And so I'm wondering then, when you listen to that album, do those memories come back whether you want them or not? Yes, they do. And then something else happened that was really beautiful. It wasn't in the summer, but it happened as we were feeling really, you know, rejected and and, and hurt yeah. by this whole situation. Uh, we came around to do a, a, a performance at the Temple Bar, and Stevie Wonder showed up. Mm-hmm. And we ended up jamming with him for like 45 minutes on the stage, and Medusa showed up to that show as well, and we were all on stage jamming. And so it was kind of like this vindication of that moment. So that's, those are the two things I think about when I think about work songs. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the bookends right there. <laughs> I feel like we could do a whole show just around whether Stevie is the definitive summer song artist. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Which I think the answer is yes. So yeah. there's a show. Every season. Yeah. Ta-da, we're there's done. a Stevie <laughs> moment. <laughs> For sure. Marta, you want to start us off? What did you choose and why? This is a project by a, well, it's a project. So it's not a group. It's by a project called Alekuma. Mm. And they're from Colombia. There's two gentlemen that decided to do, you know, they love Colombian music from different regions. And they kind of took a, a, they're kind of ethnomusicologists, musician, jazz, Mm. a little, you know. And they got together and they decided to, um, you know, tour the country a little bit and uh, recognize that there were different regional cantadoras or cantadoras, which which means singers. And it's a heavy tradition uh, dominated by women Mm. in the Afro-Colombian pantheon, right? And so they have different styles, different ways of, of singing and authorship. And so... This album was really instrumental in getting us through a whole lot of years at Seattle, Washington. I Mm. was in grad school, and I just remember enjoying this album, not just myself, but as a family, but really with my son, Mm. because he would jump on the bed with a lot of these songs. There were things that we would dance around the bed, and these were moments where I felt really sad and, and, you know, missing home and wondering if I was doing the right thing and just all this heavy doubt that happens in grad school, mm. being so far away from home and all that. But this album would always pick me up, um, you know, and make me feel happy. And, you know, every song had a different, I mean, it, some songs were even sad, but for the most part, they were, they're always grooving. It was, it's, it's a mixture of jazz um, structures, but also heavy rhythms, mm. col- uh, uh, traditional Colombian rhythms, and and the singers. Every one of the women that sang on this album are just prolific, beautiful singers, and and holding a deep, deep tradition. There mm. were intergenerational uh, moments on the album as well. Mm. So it's it's one of my favorite. It's I can listen to it like you said. From start to finish, and yeah. like I never get tired of it. It's gorgeous. I never skip a song. It's just genius. Bola, 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 el pajarito. Bola. Of course, this is my first time hearing the album, but in preparation for the for the chat, I just started going through the songs, and I fell in love with Porque Me Pega. Oh, oh yes, that's a wonderful I was just story. Like, yeah, yeah. And so it led me down a rabbit hole because I wasn't familiar with uh, Etovina Maldonado. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, first of all, she looks like my cousin. Oh wow! Um, and just watching her per- perform, um, I-, I didn't translate it before. I just, I just stayed in the moment. It's one of the most beautiful songs. Can you break down some of the song, what it's about, what she's saying? Well, she really has a beautiful, um, 
narrative. There's actually a documentary, if anybody's interested in looking at it um, later on YouTube, um, where she talks about, as cantaoras, they really um, document the community, their own experiences. You know, they're, they're kind of charged with that leadership, not just the singing and performing of these songs, but they, they're themselves um, right. And so she talks about how one time she heard a next-door neighbor's child, um, he must have done something wrong, and his mother decided to sort of take a whipping to him, right? And she was, when, he was, when she was beating him or disciplining him, um, he would cry. He would say, why are you hitting me? You know, por qué me pega means why are you hitting me? Mm. Mama, por qué me pega? Por qué me... And she said that there was something in her heart that ached for him because he said it with such, she said, sentimiento and, and like incomprehension of like, why are you putting your hands on me type of thing, you know? Mm. And she thought it was so sad that she did, next time she decided to sing, that's what she sang. And, you know, and so it's become a very famous cantaura song that, mm. you know, everybody interprets now and sings. And, and I think it's really beautiful that, you know, rarely do songs document children's lives and their hopes, their fears, their pain. And it, leave it to a cantaora to decide to sort of document this child moment that just mm. that gets us thinking, you know, as a parent, like. You know, as a frustrated sometimes parent, I, I, you know, these songs make me stop to think like, man, okay, next time I want to yell at my son or, you know, I need to think about what I'm saying and hmm. that, you know, maybe there's a cantaora next door about to write a song about me. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> Just One thing I was wondering is I fell in love with Colombian music uh, probably about 10 years ago, and it was initially through Colombian salsa, a lot of the Fuente stuff, and then mm. cumbia. You know, they have their own boogaloo tradition. I'm really into to, to, to boogaloo. And in particular, the, the Afro-Colombian diversity of, of styles, a lot of it is a product of the fact that Colombia sits geographically at this point where it is at the tip of South America. You have It's bordered by both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And importantly, on the Atlantic side is it gives it, because of all the port cities that were important to the Colombia's economy, all these port cities gives it traffic in from the larger Afro-Caribbean. And there's something about port cities, and you can look around any place around the world, you're talking. You can talk about Lima. You can talk about Los Angeles. You can talk about New York. Port cities, because they are always these these points of transit and exchange, it creates all of these unexpected, incredible music musical hybridity. And I'm wondering because, if I'm not mistaken, like Veracruz is also a coastal state, right? Do you see the same elements at play there, given the amount of time that you've all spent there thinking about the musical traditions? Is I mean, they're obviously Veracruz is nowhere near Colombia geographically, but because they both are on these borders and have this proximity to sort of the Afro-Caribbean, are there any kinds of parallels that you have found musically in, in these kinds of traditions? Absolutely. I think that they're both, it's the Caribbean, you know, and uh they have very similar cultures, not to mention, you know, the slave trade was very common in both areas. They have indigenous mixtures, uh, with, along with also a lot of European, right, um, colonizers going on in there. But um, I think that that really manifests in the music. Mm. You know, there's a lot of call and response in both. The yeah. fandango, particularly, and some of the things that have been um, revived in the culture, um, you know, pushing back on the way the industry has sort of organized and consolidated the expression itself is to bring back the call and response, right? And so mm. you find that a lot in the cantaoras uh, that I uh, picked that I've done yeah. that you, there, there's a lot of call and response and time to sort of develop and get people used to that kind of interaction, even as we're, they are five-minute songs, you know, but... Yeah. But in the tradition, this song can go on forever, you know. Uh, same thing in the fandango, you know, mm -hmm. in the son carocho. You have a lot of call and response. Um, one son can be up to an hour and a half long. Depends on how good it feels and how the groove is. And once people kind of get tired or people don't remember any more verses and they, they stop, <laughs> the song is over or yeah. the son is over. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's heavily dominated by women, right? Um, the son is also very, women are very present. They're at the center. Mm. Um, they're most of, often the ones that are sort of, 
leading the charge around the energy, what what is chosen, what you can play, how fast you can play it. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's one of those traditions that there's there's just so many things. And oftentimes there's been many academic projects that I know of that they are really trying to uh, tap into the sones compartidos, what they call, or the, the, the songs that we um, or shared are shared. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these projects out there from between Colombia and, you know, other port cities, Veracruz and Cuba, you know, Puerto Rico, you know. Yeah. So Morgan, what was your choice? Man, uh, <laughs> you know, it was tough because, um, as you mentioned, there are some, you know, we could do a bunch of summer albums, but I went with this album, which is celebrating its 26th anniversary, actually, today. Crazy. It came out July the 28th, 1992. Mary J. Blige, What's the 411? Oh, yes. Yeah. It has resonance uh, with me because of the time it came out, the summer of 1992. I had just uh, moved to Atlanta to go to Clark Atlanta University. I was living by myself, and um, I had a three-track CD player. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you had to make good choices on that thing. And so I had in that three-track CD player this one. I had um, a house record called uh, Journey with the Lonely, Little Lewis in the World. And I had um, a gospel album. I had uh, Walter Hawkins' Love Alive. So Mm. that's what I needed to get me through the summer. This will always be precious to me because it is one thing to be the face of a genre. Mm. It is another thing entirely to be the architect of a genre. Mm. Hip-hop soul? Mm -hmm. That's it. And Mm. Mary J. Blige will forever be known as the queen of hip-hop soul. Mm. Heretofore, we didn't know singers like Mary. There's like... 1991 BM, which is before Mary, and then there's, right, 1992. And what pressure to carry a coast on your back, to carry a genre on your back, Mm -hmm. and a label. You know, you're carrying Uptown. Right. Um, It wasn't just that Mary bought this album. Mary bought the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Every black girl knew another black girl named Mary. (laughs) <laughs> so visibility isn't just import, important when it comes to race and gender. Yeah. It's also important in style. It's important to see yourself. Mm-hmm. And we could all relate to this person. This sort of soul singing was new. People didn't sing soul music in backwards baseball caps and knee pads and cross colors. But Mary did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this will always be precious to me because it was a new style of soul. I wasn't used to to wanting to dance to soul. I wasn't used to our soul singers ha- also having bars because mm. what's the 411? Mary's rapping throughout that thing, Mary and mm. Grand Pooba. So I picked this because of the danceability of it, mm-hmm. um, because of the thing I mentioned before, that it's uh, connected to a memory, my time in the house, not having any friends yet, and all I had was my music. And uh, shout out to Mary for being uh, the homegirl that I didn't know that I needed and keeping me uh, not <laughs> mm-hmm. awash in, in, in loneliness and isolation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so what's the 411 to me still holds up. Um, reminisce. Come on is a mm-hmm. jam. I even let her make it on Sweet Thing, and I'm a Shaka devotee. But I was yeah. like, okay, girl, you know I, what? I'm going to let you make it on this. I thought she yeah. did a really good job with Sweet Thing. And normally yeah. I would say stay away from Shaka Khan yeah. to anybody. Yeah. Yes, but yes. it may be because I don't think I'd ever heard the original version. And I, So Mary was my introduction to the song, and it wasn't until later that I heard the OG. So it maybe if it had gone the other direction, I would have considered more sacrilegious. But I yeah. thought Mary did a real nice really job. Really good job. Yeah. Remember yeah. what you were saying on the Boys to Men show about you don't think that the Beatles, why do the Beatles have to be considered uh, precious? Right. Some people feel that way about Shaka. And so there mm-hmm. were, you know. Oh, no doubt. 
you know, yeah, there people, were varying yeah. opinions on right. this. I liked it though. Yeah. And I love Shaka, but I liked it. Yeah. I think it I stay devoted to Shaka. There's nothing like, I'm sorry, I hate to like, so but I, I do love Mary J. Blythe. I, I think she's she's a really a great, I remember that album as well, you know, and she's such a amazing, soulful singer. And I think it's really interesting that we've seen her grow up kind of, right? Yeah. Like she, I, I forgot how young she was. Yeah. I think the important thing, and it's really hard to consider this if you didn't grow up listening to what R&B sounded like pre-Mary and post-Mary. I remember when this album first came out, it wasn't just the sound of it. It wasn't just the fact that she proclaimed herself the queen of hip-hop soul. That in itself was mm. a bold claim because no one had even bothered to mm. consider it a genre. But it's also who she had with her. And you mentioned, for example, the title track, What's the 411? It's her and Pooba who was at the top of his game at the yeah. time. Full effect, man. I'm a kick the Willie Bow Wow. Check it, show. No question. Hey, yo, what's the 411, hon? What's the 411, hon? I got it going on, hon. Hey, yo, I got it going on, hon. What's the 411, hon? What's the 411, hon? I got it going on. Hey, yo, I got it going on. Will I be pooping on this year? The nigga from last year. Jabot's hanging back. He told me he'll... I mean, it is so street. From the, type, <laughs> from the opening track, Leave a Message, which mm. is, I mean... We ask sometimes, you know, is this ahead of its time? Well, this is of the moment because mm. people don't listen to voicemail anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so listen. But in 1992, everything was about your voicemail. Every yeah. message ended with mm-hmm. peace, you know. And it was everybody on there, CL Smooth. Right. It was a who's who. And, uh, I mean, Mary, this wasn't Mary's first recording. She came in with, with Father MC and mm-hmm. uh, If You Do For Me and stuff. So we had we a had little bit of a hint. Right. But this was... Mary. This felt like it was R&B for hip-hop heads. And I think that's the biggest difference Mm. between the Mm R&B hip-hop crossovers that existed just a year or two before this is because that felt like, yeah, you're kind of trying to have it both. It didn't feel organic in the way that what's the 411? It's like, Mm. oh, shit, she's sort of one of us in that sense. Absolutely. And she stayed true to that. I think a classic hip-hop moment involving Mary is is Mary J and, and, and Method Man. You're all I need to get by. Speaking of covers. Mm. Man, their take on Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Even when the skies were great, you would rub me on my back and say maybe it'll be okay. Now that's real to a rubber like me, baby. Never ever get my cootie away and keep it tight, all right? And I'm gonna walk these doors so we can play. In a fat-ass crib with thousands of kids. Well, like, you don't need a ring to be my wife. The people that were bumping that weren't, were too young to remember Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Yeah. Mm. But, uh... A great cover, completely hip hop. Mary on the rooftop of Brooklyn. You can't even see her eyes. <laughs> hat, she has stayed hat, so, hat brim so low. Stayed true enough for nothing. Um, she's you know sold so many platinum albums. Every, almost every album's gone platinum except the last three. We will be back with more of our conversation about summer heat rocks with the founding members of Gazal. But first, a brief word from some of our sibling podcasts here on Max Fun. Keep it locked. <laughs> Hey, have you checked out the Max Fun Store recently? If you head to MaxFunStore.com now, you'll see a bunch of cool new stuff in there, along with your old favorites. We've got a colorful retro-inspired bubble shirt, plus stickers, buttons, and a poster. Reading Glasses fans will love their new library book-inspired shirt. And if you're a fan of beef, check back Friday for the debut of our Beef and Dairy Network merch. We've got all that and more from a ton of Max Fun shows. There's even a Rocket Logo skateboard deck there. So go click around, see what we've got in stock, and buy yourself something fun at MaxFunStore.com. Hello, are you looking for a new comedy podcast? In which case, can I draw your attention to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? It's a fictional industry podcast for the beef and dairy industries. It won Best Comedy at the 2017 British Podcast Awards, and it features wonderful guests such as Greg Davis. To my knowledge, it's the only cow circus that's ever existed in this country. In rural Russia, every small town has a cow circus. Josie Long. You should have a beef. Have a beef with them. I have a beef with you. I will have a beef with you. Come round my house. 
and I'll have a beef with you. And Andy Daly. That virus never existed. There was never any such thing as a mad cow disease. That was all an illusion that uh, Big Lamb came up with. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would recommend starting at episode one. Bye. And we are back talking about quintessential summer jams with Quetzal on Heat Rocks. So, Quetzal, what was your pick for the, def- not maybe not definitive, but what is your personal pick yeah. for a great summer album? So, you know, I, I had to kind of think about it really hard because there's so many amazing summers and amazing albums. And I thought about, you know, like what was the, what, what was one that would be different from the ones you all are picking? And, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with one of my favorite groups, uh, a group that really had a lot of influence on the on how I developed as a musician, and that's the Smiths. Mm. And it, this album, uh, <laughs> Louder Than Bombs, it wasn't released in the summer, but it was my summer album. It was released at the end of March. Yes. And by when summertime came, I, I was deep in it and digging into it. And this is the same summer where I got my first electric guitar. And so... You're just trying to play Johnny Marr licks the whole time, right? Which is very hard. Yes. And Johnny Marr is an amazing guitar player, very underrated guitar player, who developed what some people call the guitar orchestra, right? And so he he would layer all these tracks of guitars and create Mm -hmm. these incredible sounds with these different guitars and whatnot. And so... And at this time, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I was deep in in to soul and R&B and, and, and early hip hop. Because this is what, 87? 87, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. And so, but my brother went to a boarding school in Rhode Island. And so one summer, the summer before this, he came back with all this strange music, right? And one of those albums was the Smith's Hat Full of Hollow. Mm. And and so he said, "You need to check this out," mm. you know, because he knew I was a lyric geek too. Because I would just sit with the albums and, and read the lyrics off of the the sleeve, you know. And so I started listening, and and I got really into them. And so by the time this album came out, I was I was really sort of You're ready for it, peaked by them, yeah. And yeah. And, uh, and the only way he got those because at the time they were only imports uh, until Louder Than Bombs came out, and then uh, or actually uh, the Queen is Dead before that, but. So his friends would go on something called holiday, right? <laughs> and he would come home to the ghetto, the barrio, during the summers, and they would go on holiday. And, and he went to school with a bunch of millionaire kids, right? And so they would come back with this music from Europe. Oh. And so then he would get these imports. They would bring stuff for him, and then he would bring them home and give them to me. And so I got like an early Depeche Mode album. Mm-hmm. I got a bunch of early Cure stuff. Yeah. And so I was I was listening to all this stuff. And so Louder Than Bombs was that moment where where... Those that sort of introduction to that, and then me wanting to be a musician, wanting to play guitar, kind of came together. So listening to this album in particular, you know, I came across the, the fourth song of the album, which is "Shoplifters of the World Unite." Yeah, <laughs> and so that's a jam. Yeah, my parents, <laughs> my parents were were communists. You know, there's no other way to say it. <laughs> they were. They, I grew up in a communist household, and so one of the first books I read was was the the Red Book. You know, and Workers of the World Unite. It was 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 a quote that I really remembered. Yeah, and so when I read this, and I was like, "What the hell is he talking about?" Right, and so it was, it was Morrissey's way of talking about the people who get pushed out, the people who are like strange and and you know considered outcasts, social outcasts, and you know, and like having calling these people into action and and taking over the world and making the world strange and mm-hmm. making the world you know effectively livable for everybody. It's funny because when you had sent in your album pick to us a few days ago, I did I did have to laugh a bit because <laughs> at this point and I, I don't know how many people nationally know this. Maybe if you've watched Ant-Man and the Wasp, because there is a Chicano joke about Morrissey in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think for people who know anything about sort of the history or just the community of Chicano and Chicano <laughs> listeners in L.A., the Morrissey-Smith 
connection is so deep and it's very Heavy. confusing to people outside of it. But you know, again, I don't, I, I, I hesitate to even call it insider knowledge only because I feel like everyone should know this by this point. <laughs> yeah, so. It's funny you say that because this is before that phenomena. This is way before that phenomena. Yeah. You uh, were an early adopter. I was. I w- and I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of it because once, once Morrissey got, you know, a little bit too popular yeah. with this community. Right. I, I kind of was like, it was it was uncomfortable right. for me. Yeah. You, know? you liked his early stuff. I I did. <laughs> I did like his early stuff. And but if you go to a Morrissey concert, and I'm I'm not necessarily just a Morrissey fan. I'm a right. Smith yes. fan. Yes, that's big, a big important th- distinction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, but if you go to a Morrissey concert in, in Los Angeles, you see the most amazing things. You see what appears to be hardened gang members, yeah. men together holding hands, kissing. You know. You see it's a lot of queer community. You see a lot of of brown people, you know. Uh, you and you hear him interacting with folks in this way that most artists don't interact. He he understands something, and they understand something about him. And there's this connection, and so it's kind of beautiful. But I'm a Smith fan. Yeah, I had to listen to this album in prep for this chat. I wasn't as familiar with this. I'm going to keep it real. Uh, but I was drawn to uh, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this is so light, but is this light subject wise? Because I am bumping this, okay? And is this meant to be maudlin? But I like this song a lot um, and Unlovable. Yeah. Those were uh, two of the songs that I was, I was drawn to. You know, this song was, was something that really spoke to me because of the whole, you know, working class and communist, Marxist, Leninist, you know, ideals. And, and these are working class Irish uh, uh, descendants from Manchester, from a, a very working class part of, of England that experienced, at this time, experienced brutal oppression and repression from the Thatcher government. And this is what they were responding to. And these are the things that they're talking about and the way that they're talking about them. Mm. And refusing to buy into what we know now as neo neoliberalism, mm. neo colonialism, and and really holding these values of family and of of uh, of community and of culture in, in another way, and 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 really pushing back on the, what the dominant culture is, is sort of forcing them into. Yeah, either of you. Well, you said that you did not grow up sitting with the Smiths. Not really. Yeah. And uh, my introduction to the Smiths was, we talked about the Smiths when we did the Pretty in Pink episode. Right, right, yeah. Um, And then when I became a vegetarian, one of my homegirls was like, well, you got to hear Meat is Murder. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute now. Well, that was the album I was going to choose. That was the original album I was going to choose. But I was like, "Mm, let me go with, with... this one, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that was my my yeah. second second introduction. <laughs> How about you, Martha? The Smiths. Yeah. No, yeah. I was. Um, it's not till I really met Quetzal that he's like checked that he'd play the music. I'd be like, "Why are you listening to these white boys? <laughs> you like white boy music? What's up with that?" And he's like, "What? This is so Chicano, dude. This is so Chicano." And we'd have this constant battle of whether it was Chicano or white, and to me, it was all white. <laughs> and the kids that listened to that shit, I was like, they're trying to be white. And I was more into black music. I was into Shaka Khan. I was into, you know, uh, Rufus before that. You know, I mean, I'm it was so uh, much insights into your relationship right here. <laughs> this is deep. Man. No, but the thing I'm, is that I could go there, too. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah. true. And actually, he turned me on to like deep Stevie Wonder, you know, just lay there and listen to the, all of his albums from start to finish, you know, and Jimi Hendrix. He turned me on to Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland, start mm. to finish, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, all that stuff. And it was like, wow. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire, too. <laughs> Tower you know, of Power. But I was always, you know, but I was into like, you know, Lisa, Lisa, Cult Jam. Oh, yes, yes. You know, I was, it was all, it was all about the freestyle movement in East L.A., mini trucks, cha-chas, you know, all that stuff. I also just love, I mean, all four of us here grew up in L.A. in the 1980s, right? Yep. And that we were all listening to, in its own way, a distinct pockets of music that all coexisted and were incredible, but not necessarily crossing over in this big pot all at once. Like, we could kind of pick our lanes and then sure. get introduced to new lanes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I, I like but that. But wasn't radio less segregated back in the day? Well, I think, you know, our example of K-Rock in terms of all the things that you would not expect 
by 2018 standards for a so-called modern rock alternative rock station to play, they embraced a really broad spectrum mm. of stuff. And I wasn't really listening to any other stations in that moment, so I can't speak to whatever the top 40 stations were playing, if they were as open-minded in that sense. My mm. guess is probably not. I don't know. What were the definitive stations that you were listening to in the in the late 80s, uh, Morgan? Uh, K-Day was one of them. Mm-hmm. K-A-C-E 103.9. K-G-F-J, uh, which was an AM, sta- uh, mm-hmm. yeah, an AM station. And, uh, and were these all black, black-owned stations? Yeah. And were they, mm-hmm. I mean, what was their programming like? Stevie Wonder uh, owned uh, K, uh, KJLH, KJLH, mm-hmm. but Case was black-owned. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, Jay Smooth was here, we were talking about how much I heard East Coast mm-hmm. uh, rap out here. Mm-hmm. And they didn't hear West Coast rap out there. So no. I think there was a, mm. I think there was a cross-section of, of mm-hmm. stuff. We had, LA Radio was fantastic mm-hmm. then. Um, I don't know what happened. What, year, <laughs> what year did the Mighty 690 disappear? No, my oh my god, you just 90. took me back. Yeah. Well, I remember listening to them when I first moved to California. This was in 1980 because I was living down in San Diego. And, and I, didn't, I didn't realize this until many, many years later because their primary transmitter, um, and Mighty 690 was an AM station, was in Tijuana. Yeah. And so yeah. they would always Tijuana, shout out Tijuana. I'm thinking, Mexico. Exactly. Uh-huh. I'm like, <laughs> why, why is this sort of English language, otherwise American music station, stationed yeah. in Tijuana? I realized it's because that way you don't have to deal with the FCC because you're <gasps> not in the United States. I'm like, oh, shit, that was actually kind of smart. Oh, but, wow. um, yeah, I think the Mighty 690 probably dropped off the map, I'm guessing, somewhere in the early mid-'80s. I don't remember hearing mm. that logo, that slogan again in, t- you know, yeah. Past a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When did you think of 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 six ninety AM six ninety? Oh, because uh, we were, I was just thinking about stations, and and this was also a, a very uh, a popular station, but also it was varied. Like you could list, you could listen to a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Before we take our listeners who are millennials down this eighties road that they have no interest in, <laughs> I'll bring it back to the present here. <laughs> My pick was from uh, relatively recent two thousand fifteen, another March album, and I have a theory about this. I'll. I'll bring up in a second but it is to pimp a butterfly by one kendrick lamar to pimp a butterfly is the last album that i needed to hear Every time I sat with it for the first, I don't know, 20 times, I, I had to start at the beginning. I had to take it through all the way to the end. And I didn't want to jump around. And I can't necessarily explain to you why I f- felt so compelled to have this very linear sequence listening experience with this album as opposed to other very fine albums that have come out since then. But there was something about To Pimp a Butterfly, partly because it is so much conceived and executed as an album, not as a collection of songs, but as a, a, a project in and of itself, you know, a concept album, as, as we would describe, yeah. that, you know, even though it came out in March, I think in a lot of ways it became the soundtrack for my summer because I had that lead up of two to three months to, to, to sample into it and really fall in love with it and really get deep into it in a way that if it had dropped in June... I may not have had that moment until technically summer was over. So in a lot of ways, I think that some of the best summer albums actually come out in the spring because you need some time to be able to sit with it and have that deep listening mm. and then get into it. Mm. And then you have what would be the heat rock off of this album, which would become the anthem for that summer and really the anthem, I think, of the last three years, which is all right. I'm fucked up, homie, you fucked up. But if God got us, then we gon' be all right. So interesting listening back to that song because you forget for a moment that that's Pharrell on the chorus. Yeah. And uh, Mm. Pharrell on a song that ends up being the anthem for civil uh, rights activism, uh, millennial activism, discourse, um, that it kept showing up in the clips of protest marches about Ferguson. Yeah. When you mentioned Mm. To Pimp a Butterfly being a concept album, it is a concept album for me because it's an album to me about revolution. Mm. Um, The songs that stay with me beyond All Right are Complexion and King Kunta. Yeah. 
While I love Dam and I love Good Kid, Mad City, this will always be precious to me mm. because this is where Kendrick Lamar steps out of being a representative for Los Angeles mm-hmm. to the elder statesman mm. of rap in Los Angeles. Mm. Mm. And the voice that all the complaints about, why aren't rappers really saying this and then that? Dead mm-hmm. it. That's it. Yeah. This was the album where he became that. And mm. for that matter, it doesn't feel like a summer album to me. It feels like a generational album. Ooh. It feels like it mm-hmm. speaks to the time. You gave it the upgrade. Yeah, more than more than the season. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to continue to be to bump it, bump it because I would get stuck on songs and then forget something like "If These Walls Could Talk," which I think is one of the dopest songs on there. If these walls could talk. Sex. I feel like this is also the toolkit to how to liberate hip hop. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Say yeah. more. What do you mean? Well, I mean, hip hop, let, let's be real, it became stagnant, it became co opted, it became, you know, uh, something that was more about buying and selling than it was about, like you mentioned, about saying something, mm. about really taking uh, the conditions of. I mean, it it did it was that at some point, and then it just became this really stagnant thing. Anyhow, so I feel like this is sort of, sort of like something like a, a, a Coltrane record, you know, when he starts just mm. to to explore more and expand and just really go out there and and liberate himself, and at the same time express the the uh, liberatory nature of what the community is feeling at this moment, you know. And so, yeah, listening back to listening to this album, uh, you know, I, we we were traveling a lot during this time, and so I, we'd have it on, on a plane and just listen to it over and over and over and over. And Tylana's on this album, actually, our our violin player. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, she's on on Damn also. Yeah. But uh, so f- for us, it was just like, oh man, okay, this is something entirely different, you know, and fresh and exciting, and like you know, when something's happening, you can feel when something's happening, you know. That will do it for this episode. Special summer Heat Rocks episode of Heat Rocks. I want to thank our guests, Katsal. What are you all working on right now? Just finished recording an album. Oh, right. Summer album. Mm, <laughs> summer album. For 2019? Or no, for this? When, when is it going to come out? It'll come out in 2019. Okay. Yes. Right. It's another Smithsonian Folkways release. That's awesome. It's called Puentes Sonoros, which means sonic bridges. Mm. So, finish yeah, the story. So yeah. we, we, last summer, we went to Veracruz as a band. And we spent a bunch of time with uh, different uh, protagonists from this movement that we're connected to out there. And played a lot of music. And just sort of, we've dug in for many, many years now. But we wanted the other band members to be able to experience this. Mm. And so... Um, we had a great time, came back and started composing based on that experience. And so this is this is that album. It's going to be really great to hear some of the sort of field recordings that we did mm. out there mm. and conversations we had and natural sounds that were recorded that are going to be part of the, the whole sonic experience of the album. So yeah. we're hoping that this album is one of those that, you know, that you really have to listen from start to finish in order to get the full spectrum you know and this is the first album where we actually wrote in the son harocho tradition mm. right. yeah we, we're not it's all acoustic we're not using i'm not mm. plugging my stuff in there's no drum set it's, it's all unplugged <laughs> <laughs> you're og unplugged yes and where can folks find information on you all in the group online uh facebook uh, quetzal east la uh twitter is the same handle or uh quetzal east la dot org 
You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan. Our booking producer is Shana Deloria. And our engineering and editing producer is Christian Duenas. Laura Swisher is our senior producer. And executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where it is an endless summer. Now, literally, it's still really, really hot here. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our page, HeatRocksPod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at HeatRocksPod.com. We want to thank all of our five-star iTunes reviewers. We've been getting some more in the last few weeks, which thank you all for doing this. So just in the past week, we've had Pamal, I think that's how you pronounce it, Eunice pajamas <laughs> k stewart and s hook thank you all and if you are one of our listeners new or old but you haven't had a chance to leave a review for us it is a important way what new folks can find their way to us so please do consider hopping onto itunes and leaving us a quick review we also wanted to thank all of our social media fans out there including Tayrell713. Um, I love his full handle, which says I'm top five and all of them Dylon. Shout out to you, brother. Want to thank Kevin CZAP at FlameConR136. Also want to thank Jason Bricardo. Thank you so much. Um, shout out to Heat Rocks and Museum Pieces Like Discussions. Also want to shout out Dbot Flower Emoji. I love the Twitter supporters, man. Their handles are everything and more exclamation want to shout out exclamation also want to shout out dan grubb is the best senator bigfoot lemur paw handler we also want to shout out mutant brides robert tress jacoby 81 ron hensky and eden fessy thank you so much for the tweezies and the retweezies Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. And before we get out of here, here is a teaser from next week's episode, which features singer Tiffany Goucher talking about Destiny's Child's The Writings on the Wall. We were like, can we please get, you know, we were just so, we're fans. And then when she finally got it, we were like, we literally, we literally didn't do anything that day but listen to that. Mm. And then we used to get our hair braided. And when we, when we uh, go to our friends, Kelly, she used to braid our hair and, we were talking about the album, like we, because we knew all the lyrics, so we were just—it was like a girls' thing. Like the album brought women together. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was something that you could, you know, share the songs with and sing with your friends. You know, I wasn't driving in, but if I was, I'd be <laughs> with my homegirls in the car. You know what yeah, I mean? Stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So it was nice. It was, it was good. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.